Welcome to episode 22 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you, the listener, lets me know which of the movies in my collection I need to go watch next. This month we are looking at Friday the 13th, this is the 1980 original, as opposed to the 2009 remake. The original release date is May 9th, 1980 to be precise. So this is one that I haven't watched because I actually just picked up the collection of the Friday the 13th movies earlier this year. As some of you may recall from the coverage of the original Nightmare on Elm Street last October, I'm not a huge fan of the slasher horror genre. But when I saw the Blu-ray box set of all eight movies in this franchise, or at least the first eight movies in the franchise, I figured, you know, it's a good price. It was $25 for all eight. It was good podcast fodder. And it's about time I checked that out, because it is a huge part of the culture. I've never seen one of the movies, but I played the Commodore 64 game, and I would think Jason with his hockey mask is a staple of modern culture that's often referenced, so it's good to have some familiarity to know what those references are all about. And we're covering it this month because, hey, Halloween is just around the corner, so this is part of Bureau 42's Halloween Countdown which is also why this podcast is dropping a day early. So this is a movie that was originally conceived in the title by Sean S. Cunningham, who produced, co-wrote, and directed the film. His co-writer, officially credited, is Victor Miller. And Ron Kurtz, who is also a producer, did some uncredited script work as well, just to make things work on the set, including inserting an entire scene that Victor Miller was not happy with, but we can get to that later. So, Sean Cunningham is actually best known for the Friday the 13th movies. If we look at his top four known fours on the IMDb, this is number one, followed by Jason X, then The Last House on the Left, and Deep Star Six. Those are all amongst his 28 producer credits. He's got 15 director credits, Going through the list, this is easily the most prominent. In fact, most of the other credits I've never even heard of. Now, Victor Miller is probably best known for All My Children, which he's been writing for in the 2000s, from about 2001 to 2005. He's started as co-head writer on The Guiding Light. That's one of his earliest credits. And then we're looking at The Black Pearl... Manny's Orphans, which was also on Sean S. Cunningham's director list. And then the only screenplay he seems to have for the Friday the 13th franchise is the first, but then he gets character credits pretty much all the way through. Now, Ron Kurtz is the one who picks up and takes over as the writer of Friday the 13th Part 2, and then he gets some character credits going forward. But with his 13 writing credits, 10 of them are directly related to Friday the 13th. There's one prior to Friday the 13th, as well as Eyes of a Stranger and Off the Wall. So basic plot summary is that a man named Steve Christie is trying to reopen Camp Crystal Lake. It was open in the 1950s. Then in 1958, a boy drowned. Some people were killed, and it just pushed everything off the rails. People just stopped going to the camp. It was nicknamed Camp Blood, 
we find out through some exposition from the locals that every time they've tried to reopen in the last 25 years, people have died. This year, they try to reopen it on Friday the 13th of 1980, and the members of the camp counseling crew find themselves being attacked and killed. So one by one, they are killed often with gory and gruesome deaths before ultimately we find out who the killer actually is, which is not something you could really deduce. They don't give you enough information to figure out what's going on. So it would have really come out of left field to the original audiences. And if you're coming into this based on reputation, it also may not be who you expect. In fact, I originally, going into this, thought, you know, when I found out who the real killer was, which was spoiled for me in the first few minutes of Scream, I thought that this was actually a, a tribute and homage reversing the roles from a classic Hitchcock film, which is also echoed in Harry Manfredini's soundtrack for this one. But seeing it, I don't think that's the case. It's not, oh, we think it's this person, but really it's that person with the role reversal, because you never once think that it's Jason in this film. In fact, the first time you actually hear the name Jason spoken in this movie is when the killer is giving the backstory and explaining why all of this is happening and what the motivation is. So eventually the last survivor manages to, to defeat that killer, only to be attacked by Jason when you think everything is fine in what may or may not have been a hallucination. So as far as the quality of the movie making is concerned, the cinematography is fine. They found an actual camp to film it at. It was all shot on location, so there's no concerns about sets or anything like that. They did have fairly high quality film stock. A lot of these slasher flicks would be on 16mm instead of 35 or 70mm, so you get some pretty heavy grain in the film stock, and you can never quite forget that you're watching a movie. But in this case, it actually works out fairly well. The film stock is very good. You don't really see a lot of that grain, on even on the Blu-ray release. Now, the box office performance was quite good, as you would expect from something that has spawned so many sequels. The original budget was about $550,000. So we're looking at about half a million. So if it's going to be profitable in that two to three times the budget ratio, we're looking at something that has to gross between $1.5 and $1.65 million in the box office. And that'd be domestic box office in 1980. This doesn't appear to have had a worldwide release. It looks like it was domestic only in theaters the first time. But the total domestic gross was $39 million. 754,601. So proportionally speaking, it is incredibly profitable. You know, you put half a million down, by the time you take away the shares that go to the distributors, the exhibitors, and so forth, you're probably still taking 20 million home. You know, you've taken your investment, multiplied it by 40. That's a pretty good investment. It's no surprise that this launched as a franchise. Now, the critical and audience receptions seem to be fairly similar. If you look at it in Rotten Tomatoes, where they specifically segregate them, it's liked by 60% of audiences and 61% of critics. So that's pretty darn close together. If we looked at how it's rated by IMDb users, 
With almost 100,000 votes registered, it's coming in at 6.5 out of 10. And Letterboxd, it's coming in at 3.1 out of 5. So they're all right around that same area. Which is, I guess, not really surprising when you're talking about a movie that's older than any of these websites. So it's probably a lot of the overlap with the same people going back and entering the reviews in after the fact. And we do like to go through the awards and the cast and crew. For the cast and crew, there's a number of people who are really only known for this. We have Betsy Palmer here as Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees. She's best known for the first two Friday the 13th movies, the more recent Penny Dreadful from 2005, and Queen Bee with Joan Crawford. So she was the most prominent actor in this at the time. She'd been in the industry since 1951. We're talking about movies like Mr. Roberts, the Queen Bee we've already mentioned, and a lot of various TV series, including a lot of the anthology shows, Playhouse 90, Climax, that kind of thing. Now, other actresses include Adrienne King. She's got 21 credits to her name, including Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2. She was also crew members in Wolf and the Good Son. Now, Janine Taylor plays Marcy in this. Her best known for only has three credits to it, Friday the 13th, Crystal Lake Memories, which is a behind-the-scenes documentary about Friday the 13th, included in this DVD and Blu-ray set that I mentioned, and the royal romance of Charles and Diana. That's actually only her second acting role. The other one, Crystal Lake Memories, she plays herself. So she's Marcy in Friday the 13th, and Samantha Edwards in the royal romance of Charles and Diana. And then really everything else on her IMDb list seemed like bonus features and specials about Friday the 13th. Now, Robbie Morgan plays Annie. She's also known for The Great Outdoors, Dutch Hollow, and What's the Matter with Helen. Again, only eight credits to her name. And this is the third and most prominent title on the list. And yet, Laurie Bertram has four acting credits to her name, starting with Another World in 1978. Her role as Brenda in this film is her last listed acting credit of the four. Mark Nelson did manage to get 20 credits to his name, some of which are still in pre-production. He also appeared in The First Wives Club, Remington Steele, and Suddenly Susan, as well as multiple episodes of Law and Order in multiple parts of the franchise, so he's still getting some work, but this is definitely his most prominent role. Peter Brower plays Steve Christie, who is trying to reopen this. Again, a fairly small acting credit list, 12 credits. This is the most prominent. He was also in the remake of Archer, One Life to Live, and Persons of Interest, as well as All My Children and As the World Turns. The one name that I recognized from this was Rex Everhart. He's got 38 credits to his name, including the voice of Maurice in Beauty and the Beast, and the one that I recognized, he was the desk sergeant in the 1978 Superman. So the guy who's telling someone else, oh yeah, go back to the pub and finish what you started. Then he comes out of the police station and sees Superman dropping off the ship with the jewel thieves on it and says, get my code, I'll join you. He plays a truck driver in this. Now there are two much more notable actors in here. Uh, One of them is Harry Crosby, who refused to get any work just based on the Crosby name. 
because he is the son of Bing Crosby. This is his first of five acting credits. He also appears in Riding for the Pony Express, The Private History of a Campaign That Failed, Double Trouble, and Hollow Venus, Diary of a Go-Go Dancer. So once again, this is the most prominent credit. Now, the exception to this pattern is Kevin Bacon. Not only is he the only person who doesn't have this as his number one known for, he's best known for Footloose, The Hollow Man, The Woodsman, and Mystic River, but he's got 91 acting credits to his name, including, you know, X-Men First Class, Frost Nixon, God the Devil and Bob, Sleepers, Apollo 13, A Few Good Men, JFK, Flatliners, Tremors, She's Having a Baby, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He's got no shortage of credits to his name, dating back to Animal House in 1978. He is easily the most prominent actor before and after this film. Now, how did the film go? Generally speaking, it is well made for the slashers. The gory deaths almost derail it because of the way they have to be edited and shot with the budget and the special effects technology. The shots that show the actual gory deaths often feel out of place, especially the final death of the real killer here. Now, we do like to talk about awards that these movies have won. This was not nominated for any of the major awards when it first came out, or almost none. Uh, the Mistfest nominated it for Best Film. It did not win. And for the Razzie Awards in 1981, it was actually nominated for both Worst Picture and Worst Supporting Actress, although it won neither of those. More recently, this DVD and Blu-ray collection that I mentioned was nominated for the Best Collection and for the Best Extras in 2013 by both the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films and by the Satellite Awards. And the specific DVD extra that got a nomination was that Crystal Lake to Manhattan collection. That, you know, the documentaries on that. So as DVD sets go, it is very well produced. I was actually pleasantly surprised by the quality, knowing that these have a reputation for being very low-budget films. Now, in terms of messages, morals, meanings, you could try to pull messages out of it, but what's happening is really that you have a psychotic killer who's not rational and is clearly in the wrong with their actions. So aside from, you know, paying more attention to your friends, because a lot of these people are getting killed, and, you know, by the time they start getting killed, and they realize that they're being killed, it's almost too late for them to act, but I don't see anyone trying to leave the camp. I don't see anyone trying to get to the police. And that's probably because in the original writing, it was supposed to be an unreachable camp, very isolated, no one can be there. And that's why that one scene I mentioned really frustrated Victor Miller, because the scene that Ron Friends put in was a police officer coming just to check up on them because he heard that, you know, Crazy Ralph was in the area and watch out. So he's able to just drop in and check on them while he's in the area. And Victor Miller didn't want anything else to be in the area. There's no other reason to have them there, just so they feel more isolated and less supported. And even reading that after the fact, I've got to agree with him. That scene felt out of place, and it kind of derails the film a little bit. So I would think in a more ideal version of the edit, that scene would have just been removed entirely. Anyway, that's about all I have to say about the original Friday the 13th. If you're a fan of the genre, it is definitely worth checking out. If you're not a fan of the genre, 
Don't expect it to change your mind and win you over. And I do want to say in the future, I am going to be working very actively to try and get guest stars on with me so that these are, you know, less one person joining on and more conversations because I do feel that those do tend to produce better podcasts of this type as, you know, I, you can give feedback if you want, but I suspect in this podcast series, the Batman versus Superman podcast is probably the best one we've released so far when I had John M. Wilson on as a guest. So I'm going to be doing more to actively solicit guests for future episodes. If any listeners out there are interested in being guests and discussing any of the movies on the list of possibilities, send me an email to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com and we'll talk about it. In the meantime, thank you for listening.